This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash javascriptjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. I'm also going to be putting this on the My JavaScript Story feed. So if you're uh, on either of those uh, shows or either of those feeds, uh, just be aware. The reason that I'm doing that is because I have with me Peter Cooper. Hello, everyone. Yeah, you're getting a two for one here. That's right. Now, Peter was one of the original panelists for both Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber, which is why I'm putting it on both feeds. And you also run the Ruby Weekly and JavaScript Weekly and a whole bunch of other weekly newsletters for different programming communities. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, if you, if you had a my Go story as well, I could probably be on that as well. Uh, yeah, I don't have a Go podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so is it just the three or do you have other newsletters and things going on as well? Oh, crumbs. No, it's uh, about 10 or 11 now. So we've got Go, we've got database technology in general, we've got React. Um, so yeah, it covers a whole bunch of different areas. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to have a look at them, cooperpress.com, you can go and have a look. It's, uh, yeah, they, they, they keep popping out. Very cool. So um, anyway, we do this show a little bit differently and we'll get into a little bit more of what you have going on here in a little bit. But yeah, I, this, this show is for me, at least, to kind of capture people's story, to give people an idea of, hey, wh- where does all this come from? You know, for you, it's, it's a lot more of community contributions as opposed to, say, open source contributions or, um, you know, working in a traditional job in a large company or a small company. But it, it's always interesting just to see what people's backgrounds are and what makes them do what they do. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. I'm, I'm curious, how did you get into programming? So I don't remember like not being able to program. So um, my dad was just heavily into computers and everything in the early 80s. So he you know, constantly had a stream of, uh, at the time, you know, uh, wonderful microcomputers coming through the house. Uh, very British in theme. So um, the Commodore VIC-20 and uh, devices by Acorn, uh, who are now... I believe ARM. Um, so they grew up into a very, uh, very successful company. Uh, but basically, all sorts of bizarre British computers that I got to play with as a kid. Um, and part of that was just leafing through the manuals and seeing what can you do with this thing, and typing in stuff that was in the books. And um, I'm weird for some reason. I can't remember a lot before the age of about six or seven, anyway. For some reason. Um, so I just remember, like, some of my first memories are literally, you know, typing stuff in or just playing around like with line numbers and basic and stuff like that. So just into computers from a very early age. So I've kind of lived and breathed them the whole time. So yeah, it's not, it wasn't like I was going into it for like a job or anything. This was literally just noodling around as a kid trying to make it print cool stuff on the screen. Very cool. Um, I don't know if you noticed, I have my video on my two year old just walked in. I didn't realize my door was open. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got three girls. So, you know, I know, I know what it's all about. Yeah. And for the listener, uh, you, you can get a little chuckle out of this. She walked in with my six-year-old's underwear on her head. So I don't know where she found that. but <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not your underwear. Nope, not mine. Anyway, so so that's really interesting. I mean, um, I, I was exposed to programming pretty early, but I didn't do a whole lot with it. My You know, my dad's a dentist, um, so he bought the computers, but he didn't really program them or anything like that. So... You know, it's just, it's interesting to, to hear, oh, well, you know, kind of the background and, you know, your dad was a computer enthusiast. So how do, how do you feel that that influenced you getting older? I mean, was it, did you always want to be in the programming arena or was it just something that you kind of kept doing until it became a profession? Um, a little bit of both. Like obviously at the time, uh, you know, it, I didn't even think about it. It's just like playing with computers was like playing with you know, Lego or something like that to, you know, anyone else. 
So it was just a natural part of what I did. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, I didn't really know of, about it as a profession. Obviously, I, you know, I saw the, saw the stories, you know, at Bill Gates and stuff like that, but it never kind of occurred to me like, oh yeah, I really want to be a professional programmer when I grow up. It's, it, I, I just don't think that sort of profession, at least in my sphere, which was quite, despite having the computers, was reasonably working class um, in England. Like, it, I just didn't know anyone who was a professional programmer or did anything that like involved computers on a day-to-day basis. So it was still seen as very much a pursuit or a hobby or kind of a sideline kind of like tinkering around with a you know sports car or something like you know i didn't know any racing drivers so i wasn't going to be one of those um my dad was an electronics engineer but that was basically focused on fixing like telecommunications equipment and stuff Mm -hmm. like that uh computers was literally just the hobby so no i didn't you know until i reached i don't know about sort of 13 14 that kind of age i never saw it as a profession um and even then like even though i was you know, I was developing games and just uh, doing like demos. I did a little bit of demo stuff um, as a teenager. I just never saw it as a route to like, you know, financial success because I had no examples of that other than, you know, people like Bill Gates, which they weren't really painted in the, the press as being programmers as such. He was like a, you know, an out to get them kind of businessman. So, yep. no, I was basically trying to be uh, a lawyer was actually the, the, the direction I was headed in. Um, but yeah, obviously that never, that never occurred and that's probably better for the world, I imagine. Yeah, that I, it's, it's funny that you, uh, you talk about that because, um, well, I almost became a lawyer myself (laughs) and, uh, there you go, you know, I did an internship and decided that that was definitely not what I wanted to do. But, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think we're about the same age, um, if I had to guess, I might be a little older than you. Maybe you're a little older than me. I don't know. But I'm 36, uh, so yeah, so I'm a year older than you are. Okay. But uh, you know, yeah, it was kind of the same for me, right? It was this hobby thing. You know, the there were people at universities that were getting paid, you know, dollars to write code. But for the most part, yeah, it was it was a hobby. It was it was something that that people just. Uh, you know, they, they did for fun or, you know, that I did with my friends, you know, we put, we played some games, you know, some DOS games, some text-based games and things like that. And, you know, yeah, it was just something that was kind of fun. Um, in fact, I didn't really take, uh, computers seriously as far as careers went until I was in college. Um, and so, you know, I kind of see these parallels here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we see the same thing with gaming now. uh So, like, I, you know, I don't know what other people have done, but I've always, it's always been a kind of a weird enough hobby when I was a kid. It was a geeky enough hobby that it wasn't something you kind of like boasted and shouted about. Like, oh, I'm into computers. I love playing on computers all the time. Like, it was something you kind of covered up. Like, it was what you did, like, in your spare time. Um, and so it never really was okay with me to just think like, oh, I'm going to sink like my whole life into doing this, even though I enjoy it. It was very much a sideline. Um, and I think some people have had a similar experience with gaming, like people who, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, were heavily into their consoles and uh, being great at games or whatever. But it was just a mm-hmm. sideline. Whereas if they'd really like doubled down on that, you know, nowadays you look at all these people that are making money on Twitch and YouTube and streaming and, uh, you know, esports and everything. And these are the people that literally were so obsessed, they just didn't give up whatsoever. Right. Like they live and breathe gaming. So now they've made a success of it. I didn't know that was OK. Like that's something that I've only realized now that I've got sort of my 30s and I've sort of been on the internet long enough to sort of see that actually you can be heavily into a subject like horses or guns or like, you know, anything that's absolutely crazy, grooming dogs. Like as long as you're heavily enough invested into that, it can actually become a profession. And it sounds like the same with you. Like we didn't realize when we were younger, even if we were exposed to programming as young people, that that was actually kind of okay. It was almost like a bit of a, like, oh, it was a slightly weird thing to do, like playing with toy trains. Um, we, you know, maybe there would, would have been other opportunities to capitalize on that if we'd grabbed uh, the ball by the horns, as it were. And so I think that's actually why age that you begin programming isn't actually that relevant to how good you are and how well you right. do. Um, you can see people that actually came to it relatively late, like um, David Heimeyer Hansen, the creator mm-hmm. of Rails, for example. He, you know, compared to, say, us, maybe, he came to it somewhat later in his 20s, I believe. Um, but, you know, obviously, superstar uh, programmer, you know, huge amounts of success. Um, and I think that's really about, it's what it's about. It's knowing what your skills are, but then managing to capitalize on them and being proud of them and using them. And I just feel that's something I kind of missed out on. And I'm not going to feel too sorry for myself because I have, you know, made a success for myself. But yeah, I, I, I just kind of wish I had the internet earlier on in life, you know, maybe as a kid even and seen that 
you can take any interest or thing and just turn it into a profession, which would have been really cool to know. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's it's interesting the way that you talk about that because, I mean, you know, uh, I've, I've gone through a programming career, an IT career, and now I'm doing a podcasting career, right? You, you know, you've done programming and uh, you've done podcasts. You've also done the newsletters. And, mm. you know, again, it's, it's something that, you know, you kind of throw yourself into. I got really passionate about podcasting and, and made, you know, made that move. And, uh, you know, it, it does, it applies to anything. And I, I try and tell people, you know, cause some folks are like, well, I'm in my fifties, you know, can I get into programming? And I'm like, absolutely. And it's just a matter of, you know, jumping in with both feet and really caring about what you do and really, uh, finding that thing that drives you in it. Yeah. I think you need to find, um, a kind of an orthogonal skill that goes mm -hmm. with the programming. So some people say, oh, I want to learn programming and they just learn programming. It's like, well, why are you doing this? And, you know, if they turned around and said, well, actually, you know, I'm really like, you know, I'm well trained as a doctor, let's say, and I'm well into like, I don't know, gene therapy or something. It's like, well, how could you learn programming and actually use that to help you do analysis of, let's say, some of your reports or, you know, something that relates to your profession? Well, once you start doing that, then you kind of enter this smaller group where you can be the best of the best at people who know how to use Python to do stuff with genes, let's say. And this is a very contrived example, but there's not many people that know how to do that. Um, so if you are going to try and learn some kind of programming thing, or even if you're a programmer and you want to learn, let's say, a marketing thing or a sales thing, like try and find where you can kind of stick all these needles and like find this pinpoint um, that kind of where you can really reside. Like mm -hmm. you don't have to own the whole thing. Like you can just be, I'm a programmer who is a doctor who can build appointment systems, let's say. Like you can be number one at that thing. And that would be very cool. Yep, absolutely. So uh, getting back to the more um, routine interview questions, um, what I usually ask next is how did you get into Ruby or JavaScript? So let's start with Ruby. How did you get into Ruby? Um, so I actually got into Ruby after JavaScript, but I will go there. Um, I went for a whole myriad of languages um, in my sort of younger times, usually the ones I just found the easiest to work with, which is, you know, I began with basic, so I mm -hmm. kind of was set off on the right uh, course there. Um, but I went through a whole bunch of different languages, um, and Perl was the one I actually used for the longest amount of time because, well, we just happened to have a huge Perl book around the house in the mid-90s, and I just picked <laughs> it up. Um, and I've always had a really good brain for, like, just completely pointless, like, symbols and stuff like that. Like, I've all, I, regular expressions, I have a lot of weaknesses, but regular expressions is, like, my superpower, I can look at them and just I can just see like what's going on there. Um, and I've always felt quite lucky with that because I know a lot of people have a problem with it. Um, so Pearl was just like, great, like this looks like line noise, perfect for me. Um, and so I worked with that for about eight years, building just various sort of small web apps and stuff. Um, it was it became very painful because for most of that period, there were no real frameworks or anything. Um, so I was just getting really tired of doing it. And I was building my own kind of XML storage systems and just complete nonsense um, that was all just sort of rigged together. Um, and so when I saw uh, Ruby on Rails was mentioned on Slash Dot, I think it was about mid-2004. It wasn't long after the first public release. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, this sounds kind of interesting. And the fact that DHH had done a screencast, that really appealed to me. Like, oh, I can see how it works. I can see how he's putting something together. Like, this is really appealing. I don't want to learn a new language. Like, Ruby probably sucks. I'm not interested. Um, let's see if I can recreate what he's doing in Perl. So I oh, nice. to do this. Um, <laughs> so I, I built something that was very much light rails in Perl, but because I was kind of naive and just an idiot um, generally, I kind of just hashed the whole thing and it was a bit of a mess. So I was like, well, I kind of see like the value in this approach. Um, let me actually try, you know, his thing. Um, and I just started working with it. And I had a app that I had to build for a client, a photo gallery. And I was like, well, let's just use that as a you know, quick project. And I literally built it within, mm -hmm. I don't know, 24, 48 hours. Like it was so quick. And I was like, oh my God, like this is a life changer. Um, and it went from there. Um, that app actually, it was built on, oh my crap, I think it was like Rails 0.8 or something. Like it was one of the really early ones. And I actually managed to keep it limping in production until about 2014. Oh, wow. Um, on the same code base. Yeah, I mean, like, you could have totally hacked this thing and just, like, destroyed the server it was on. But it was such a unpopular site, it never got hacked, luckily. Um, 
but yeah, so it ran for a long time and it, it did its job. I, you know, it made its money that I needed to make and off we went. So it was from there that I picked up Ruby and just Pearl just fell by the by. Um, I just built more stuff in Ruby, got more happy with it. And there we go. It was a, a very happy moment. But I really had to like be forced by circumstances to really get into it. It, uh, it took a lot for me to pick it up. That's really interesting. Um, what about JavaScript? So JavaScript is a bit of a weirder um, story in that I was I would kind of I think I came online about two thousand not sorry two thousand nineteen ninety four nineteen ninety five that kind of era. Um, so the web was already kind of taking off. Like I wasn't in at the absolute start, um, but uh, I think Netscape two came out not long after I got online. Um, and Netscape 2, I believe, was the first one to um, introduce JavaScript, although at the time it was called something else, LiveScript, I think it was. Um, but it very quickly changed to JavaScript. Um, I'm sure you've probably spoken to Brendan. He's told the whole story about mm-hmm. how that happened. Yes, he has. Very interesting story it is too. So look back if you want to do that. Um, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to that episode. There you go. There you go. That could be one of my picks. Uh, I'll, I'll warn show. you, it's two hours though, so just be aware. Yeah. I listened to it. It was a really good show. Um, but yeah, so you know, all that kind of happened. Um, and there were two things that joined together. One was that I was building very, very simple web pages just for my own satisfaction and fun, thinking that I could be like the next Yahoo by building my own kind of like, you know, list of web pages mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but secondly, I was really heavily into Usenet. And uh, if anyone listening isn't familiar with what Usenet was, it was kind of like a, you kind of had this like big federation of servers that would like share um, groups between each other of like text posts, essentially. So, uh, you would have groups, a bit like, almost like Reddit, but like distributed across millions of different servers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have groups like um, comp.lang.javascript, for example, and uh, I think it was alt.lang.basic.misc and all these kind of weird, bizarre names. Um, and I was just heavily into posting on those groups at the time. Um, and I just kind of got into JavaScript and I was like, oh, I want to learn a bit more about, you know, how can I like automate my forms and stuff like that? Because at the time when you had a form on a web page, like that was it. It was just the input field, a submit button and bam, like you couldn't, right. you know, work with the input or anything other than on the server side. So I was just keen to learn more about that and just ended up on the comp.lang.javascript uh, Usenet group. And recently I actually went back and looked at like some of my earliest posts on, on there. They were kind of from about 1996, that kind of era. And oh man, I was a complete idiot. Like this is the thing that keeps coming up. Like I was just, asking the most stupid questions and just like answering people's questions that were like incorrect and stuff. Like it was just an absolute mess, but it was really fun. Just like noodling around with this very embryonic language that everyone was kind of writing off at the time from what I recall. Like it was like, Oh, like this kind of is a bit clunky. It's so slow. Like, you know, we don't need to make browsers any slower. Like Java applets are kind of lame. Like we don't need any more rubbish in there. Uh-huh. Um, so I kind of played with it for about a year and just, you know, built a few very minor things and then just dropped it because it was it was not a good language at the time. Like it was a terrible language. Um, it just in its application, like there was nothing really interesting you could build with it until, of course, DHTML and that kind of idea came along of, um, oh, now we have div tags and we can create elements on a page and we can move them around and, uh, you know, we can change the cursors that appear on the screen, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I just kept noodling around with it. I didn't build anything substantial, but I just kept playing around. So JavaScript was very early on a natural kind of language for me in that I could make my way around it, but I never sort of did any work in it as such. It was just a fun play language again, like basic was when I was a kid. Um, and then it wasn't until, you know, like Ajax, uh, really kind of became a thing that I really got into it and using it from Ruby. So my path to JavaScript was very just hobbyist again, like a lot of things, but then became professional once I had the web apps that needed the things that JavaScript could now offer. So that's how I got into it. It was no deliberate, I'm going to learn this thing. It was just, I'm just going to play with this thing. And I kind of picked it up over the course of several years. And what I did learn in those several years, you could now learn in a week, like no problems Uh at all. So yeah, very slow, but uh, slow, but steady climb. So what is it that you like about these languages? You know, what, what makes you, what made you stick in, uh, Perl? What made you, uh, move to Ruby? What made you, you know, get into JavaScript? What, what was it about these languages that made you really kind of go, Oh, this is, this is cool. I like doing this. With the exception of Ruby and kind of the, 
middle to latter stages of working with it, um, it was literally just the results. Like all I care about is I can make this cool thing. I can make this thing move. Um, and this language is a tool that will allow me to do that. Like I wasn't enamored, as I, you know, I've just obviously um, said very horrible things about JavaScript already. Um, but I kind of feel that way about a lot of languages that I come to. I just look at them and I'm like, oh God, why do you have to do this uh -huh. stuff? Like I looked at Java like um, quite early on. It's like, why do I need like a giant IDE to do everything? Like why do I have to type <laughs> out a thousand lines to get anywhere? Um, I had exactly the same experience with Visual C++ um, plus plus when I was first exposed to it in the mid-90s as well. Like just to draw... Uh, anyone who's familiar with the Win32 API will probably agree with me here. Like, why do you need about 500 lines of code just to put like a window on the screen and put like a hello world in it? Like, why is that necessary? Like, what mm -hmm. was, you know, Microsoft thinking? Now, of course, you know, you can look back at that and you think, well, yeah, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, but that kind of sort of thing was just a massive turnoff to me. So any language that I've come to and it's been like, I can literally say, print this or whatever, you know, like I can just put a line of code and bam, a result appears. I can, I really get on with that. And then I build up in stages like, oh, right, let's now put two things on the screen. Oh, let's do a loop. Now let's do loads of things on the screen. How can I build up and up and up? Um, so languages that are very quick and easy to get going with are, appeal to me a lot. And Perl, Ruby, um, JavaScript, they all kind of fall into that category. Right. They, you don't need to do a ton of study up front. Um, and I mean, I used, so the other languages before that, that I had this experience with, uh, I began with basic, but my second language was actually 6502 um, assembler because it was the chip that was used in the microcomputer I had at the time, which was the BBC Micro. And back then, like working with assembly language was actually quite easy because, I don't know, just like the machine, the chips kind of just more directly mirrored like the language. I'm trying to think how best to explain this. But nowadays, if you work with x86 code, the code that you're writing and how it actually ends up getting run on the CPU you've got on your machine, it's actually very different. Like it's running this micro code, it's optimizing stuff, like you have to worry about memory boundaries and caching and all this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. But back then, you know, machine code and assembly language were very direct and you could just say like, put one in this register, add another one to it, you know, all this yep. type of stuff. I love that directness and that's the directness I'm always going for in a language. When I don't have that directness, I feel a little bit lost. Yeah, that makes sense. Did a little bit of that myself in college. Um, I was a computer engineering major, so we uh, did a lot more programming closer to the metal than, I mean, you know, you start out with basic programming in Java at the time when I went to school. But yeah, you know, I, I definitely see that, you know, with, you know, some of the parts of C were, were things that were pretty straightforward, you know, just straight up procedural. And then um, there were definitely parts of C that, threw people off, you know, as far as like memory management and pointers and things like that, uh, you know, people struggled with those, but yeah, a, a lot of the things that were just really, really simple to do were really nice. Um, yeah. It's, it's very easy to systematize. Like it's very iterative. Like you say, I do X and then X occurs. I do Y, mm -hmm. Y occurs. Yep. Languages that I've struggled to get into, despite them becoming rewarding in the end, have tended to take different approaches. So take like SQL, for example, like, that's not quite the same. You're not saying, like, right. do this thing. You're saying, this is the result I want. Now you figure out how to do this thing. Um, and it took me so long to really get my head around that kind of idea. But once I did, I was like, actually, this is kind of really cool. So, you know, coming to declarative and functional approaches has been quite a late thing for me. Like, I'm very used to the imperative. I tell you mm -hmm. what to do. It happens. Um, but, yeah, I think that's just what happens when you're self-taught. Like, you, you kind of learn this model that you have in your head of how the world works but then when you run into things like haskell let's say um or erlang and things like that that take a totally different approach it's like okay this is like alien technology like humans did not invent this clearly <laughs> um you know i'm sure we've all had those experiences yeah definitely the why in the heck would you do it that way exactly so one of the things that you're probably best known for are the newsletters um yeah. Now, was Ruby Weekly your first one, or was it something else? It was Ruby Weekly, yeah. And and how did that get going? So, my kind of earlier claim to fame, well, I've, I've always been into blogging. Um, not so much in recent years, but yeah. I began quite early on in 1999 when Blogger didn't even exist. Um, and there was this kind of scene called um, the EN scene. And I just mention this because it really needs to be on the record. It's It's so rarely mentioned anywhere. Um, but it was a, a scene called the everything, nothing scene. And there were hundreds of different 
mostly adolescent males who would um, put up web pages that kind of had diaries of their very sad and pathetic lives. Um, <laughs> and they would put up like pictures of like, you know, bikini models they liked and they'd, you know, swear each other. And it, it's very juvenile. It was complete trash. Um, and I was kind of partially involved with that. Um, never became famous at it or anything, but I kind of got into this idea of I'm going to share just random thoughts I have online. Um, Blogger then came out. Blogging became a thing. I doubled down on it. I just kept writing about the programming stuff I was doing. I got approached by A Press, who said, oh, you're one of the few people we see blogging about Ruby. Like, would you like to write a Ruby book? Um, actually, I think they might have said Rails book. I turned around and said, well, I'm not so good at Rails. I'm, I seem to be better at Ruby, actually. So they're like, well, build a Ruby book then. So we we worked together on that. I released Beginning Ruby in 2006, I think it was. Um, and I just thought, well, let's build a blog to promote the book. Um, that's something that, you know, cool, trendy, modern authors do. Mm-hmm. Um, I started the blog, which is called Ruby Inside. It's still kind of online, but no longer active um, at rubyinside.com. Yeah, it was a terrific and, resource way back when. Yeah, it really took off. Like, um, no one had really thought of the idea of, like, let's have a kind of a news site for programming uh-huh. languages. Like, that was a relatively new idea. Um, so I just kept hammering away at it. Um, it didn't promote the book hugely. Like that kind of became a secondary thing. Um, just in case anyone's interested in the story of why it was called Ruby Inside, I actually spoke to Jeffrey Grossenbach of, uh, Code fame. Um, and he kind of just made this quip that like, it was like Intel inside, like all the things I was doing He's like, Oh, it's kind of like Ruby inside. I'm like, I'm stealing that name. Um, nice. Intel never came after me, thankfully. Um, and it just went from there. So we built up to uh, about 30,000 um, subscribers to the RSS feed. Um, people kind of started sponsoring it. And I made some money off of it. Not a huge amount, like a couple thousand dollars a month. Um, but it was, you know, enough for me, like a man of simple means at the time. Um, and yeah, and then I kind of saw these inklings, like these kind of, I don't know, visions, I guess, in the distance of, Actually, a lot of people are getting into email all of a sudden again. Um, there were a lot of email-related businesses coming out, like Groupon. Um, uh-huh. And some people I knew on Hacker News were building these lists of like, oh, these you know, are email-based businesses. Like, why are they taking off? Blah, blah, blah. They were doing some analysis on it. And I'm like, well, hang on. Like, maybe I should be looking into this for doing, you know, sharing Ruby news. So I registered rubyweekly.com. It was just, I don't know why I came up with weekly, but that's just what I went with. Um, signed up for a MailChimp account. Bam, up we were you know, and running. Um, I just kind of came up with a very basic format and started sending it out. And very quickly, we had a couple of thousand subscribers just from the promoting it to the 30,000 that were subscribed on the RSS. And very quickly, it became the main thing. Um, you know, and from there, it just kind of dominoed. I just kind of realized, well, people seem to be really keen for this. People are clicking on the links. The engagement's really high. So... What do Ruby? What are Ruby people into? That's other stuff that I can convince them to sign up for. And I was like, well, let's go with JavaScript. And yeah, the rest is history, as it were. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, you you wrote a book. You've, um, you know, you did the blogs for a while. Yeah, I haven't looked at Ruby Inside for years. I remember you also set up RubyFlow.com. Ah, uh, yes. And yeah. So RubyFlow was actually kind of more like um, I wanted people to. So people do keep emailing me. They send in submissions for Ruby Inside. They say, oh, check out my thing, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of got a bit bored of like receiving so many emails. So I thought, hang on, I've got an idea. What I'll do is I'll create a, a site that is a bit like Metafilter, which I don't want to go too much into that, but metafilter.com is a very interesting old community site that is basically like almost like a, a group blog for thousands of people. You can put a post on, link to something, uh, and off you go. It was kind of like a, a Reddit before its time, um, but where everyone sees the same front page. And mm-hmm. I thought, let's do this for Ruby. I created something in Rails. Uh, actually, or did I? Yeah, no, it was in Rails. Got it up, started posting my own stuff to it. And very quickly, people just followed on and started posting stuff. And it's run itself for about 10 years now um, and continues to to operate. So yeah, rubyflow.com is worth checking out. I never got onto creating one for JavaScript or anything like that. Actually, I lie, I did. I ended up doing that, um, but it didn't take off. Um, but yeah, so yeah, more projects of that nature came out. And uh, it's gone very well. Yep. Um, but but yeah, so, you know, the, these are contributions that I think people are interested in. And uh, just kind of knowing the story behind it, you know, something that we all use. I mean, I use it to find guests for the shows. And I know other people use it to try and stay current. And so um, I'm, I'm curious, like, what's the ultimate goal for you with it? Is it 
you know, to provide information for people, just, you know, interesting stuff? Or are you trying to help guide people as far as staying current? Um, or, or is there really an overarching plan for it at all other than this stuff's really cool, here you go? Um, well, I guess the underlying basic kind of uh, human requirement here is that, you know, it's something that I found that works. It's something that I found can provide an income for me mm -hmm. um, and other people as well. It's something that, you know, seems to provide value to other people and, you know, people seem to like. <laughs> At a very basic level, that's what it's about. Like, I've just found something that works and let's keep doing that. But yeah, you know, thinking about it at a slightly more philosophical level, um, I don't know. I just feel like I've discovered this kind of knack for being able to look at very large kind of areas of the programming world and going, oh, hang on, this is kind of interesting because it fits in between these two other things, or this is interesting because it's current carrying on this kind of weird trend that's occurring in this other area. Um, I just seem to have a good eye for it. So I probably should have, like, if I'd actually, like, got a degree and, you know, became an, a more intellectual person, I should have probably gone to, like, Forrester or uh, Gartner or somewhere and become an analyst. Um, that type of job very, very much appeals to me, like writing reports about why are people doing this and, uh, you know, why is this occurring and what technology should you be using next? So I'm currently, I guess I'm kind of like being an analyst, but without charging people $10,000 a month mm -hmm. to like learn what I've discovered. Like I share what I discover. It goes into every issue um, and I just leave very small opinions about things as I go. Um, and it's just something that I found I'm good at and it makes money. So let's keep doing that. Uh, there are slightly bigger goals for it, you know, going on into the future. Are there other ways that I could um, express these things that are other, you know, media that I can use? Um, you know, does it make sense to do more podcasting like I've done in the past? Uh, does it make sense to do more newsletters? And, you know, does it make sense to take it onto the web a bit more? Um, but these are all very minor points in the overall picture, which is that, you know, I found a skill. I found something that I seem to be good at doing. Let's keep doing that. Yep, Absolutely. So are there other things that you've contributed to the Ruby or JavaScript communities that you would like to talk about that we haven't brought up? Um, yes, yeah, a few things. So one of the bigger ones was that because of my work with JavaScript Weekly, and there is a real theme here of I work on something, people see it, and then they ask me to do something else. And then now I'm off on another new journey, mm -hmm. um, was running the O'Reilly Fluent Conference, um, which I did for, I think, five or six years. It went from like 2011 to... Uh, I didn't do last year. No, I did do last year. I didn't do this year's. Um, so I did five or six episodes of that uh, with O'Reilly chairing the conference, um, initially with Brady Forrest and then with Simon St. Laurent. Um, and that was a really interesting experience because I had zero experience of working on an event um, and what it entailed. I actually really hate going to events. Um, I find them extremely hard work. Um, as an attendee, I'm just not the right sort of person to get everything out of an event. You know, I just want to run crying and screaming to my hotel room within two seconds of arriving. But I just kind of took it on because it was an interesting challenge. And I thought, well, how does it differ to run an event rather than actually attend one? Um, and as it turns out, I really, really enjoyed it. It was, you know, very rewarding. Um, and I just really loved actually running the event. It's something that I'm, you know, keen to, to move on to doing more of in the future. Um, but it was so cool because it was actually like curating a newsletter, but like a big kind of annual edition almost like it was, let's find all these cool speakers. Let's, uh, you know, see how I can build up a narrative in, you know, the different tracks that we would run, you know, is react going to be a big deal Is angular going to be a big deal. How do they play against each other? Um, and formatting the conference around that. And, you know, especially like working on some of the hallway track type things, you know, can we get people into chat? We actually did get the angular team in to, you know, sort of do a hallway track chat in a lounge that we put mm -hmm. together and stuff. Really, really fun, really good experience. So if anyone, you know, is listening to this and they're a bit like, oh, you know, I'm not a very sociable person, I'm very introverted or anything along those lines, well, running something can actually be a lot different to that because you're kind of in charge, you're on the line, you've got no real excuse. Um, you know, uh, it's an interesting experience. So definitely give that a go if you get the opportunity. Um, and I've obviously done, uh, I, I spoke at an event that you did, the, um, I know you do the Ruby Dev Summits, um, uh -huh. the online Yep. conferences uh, and that again is a very interesting experience but totally different obviously to doing it in person oh absolutely um it's funny i don't i'm sure you've probably encountered actually trying to get people to talk on them is actually sometimes very odd like you yep. get people that would talk at a normal conference but then when it comes to an online conference it's like well hang on i can't see anyone and i can't get like the energy off of them and stuff now 
I'm very, very happy at talking to a computer screen and like there being no one there. But I've discovered that some people absolutely hate that experience. Like it's something you really have to cajole them to do. So yeah, that's something else that I've done um, with you. And that has been an interesting experience. Um, and again, I mentioned the podcast before, um, which I hosted with Jason Cipher or the yep. late, great Jason Cipher. Uh, rest in peace. Yeah, it was sad um, to hear that he was gone. Yeah, it was it was ridiculous. Like it was just came out of nowhere. But kind of at the same time, like I know this is probably a bad thing to say, but it's kind of almost like he was doing something that he really enjoyed. Like if he was going to, you know, die in any way, like, you know, speeding along behind a boat was going to be like on the list somewhere. Um, so I'm glad at least he had a good time. Um, he did have a very good time while he was alive and he, there's a lot to learn from that, I think. Um, so yeah, we did quite a lot of episodes of the, the news shows and, you know, I know that you do uh, podcasts in those areas, mm-hmm. but no one has really necessarily filled the gap of like the, the news area. So it's like I've been considering, but it's not on my priority list by any means. Yeah. It's something I've um, also considered. Yeah. So come on, more merrier. Let's all launch, let's all launch some podcasts and uh, <laughs> have a good time. This is the thing, like there's so many different ways of sharing news now. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we've had, we've had people launch newsletters that are very similar to ours and, you know, have done well on their own. Like the, the audiences out there are so big and divided up that like trying to like get to try like, thinking of any one audience is the completely wrong way to think about it. Like I could start, let's say I could start my own, say, you know, Ruby remote comp like uh-huh. up tomorrow. And yeah, we would get like a crossover between the people that turned up, but there would be people that came to mind that would say, Oh, I've never heard of Chuck Maxwood. Who's yeah. he? But then there's people that would turn up at yours that would say, I've never heard of Peter Cooper. Who's he? Like, and I encounter this all the time at events and things like, where you just assume people would have heard of like a big thing that's going on in, in the community, but they've never heard of it. And it, you discover these whole pockets of people that, I don't know, they just have different experiences to you. And I think that's really cool. So yeah, if everyone wants to launch a podcast, please uh, carry on or email, whatever. Um, yeah. And then I guess I've only got one other project to mention, which relates to me and JavaScript, which is uh, we now have a Medium account um, mm. called DailyJS. And we found that if you link your Twitter account, um, to Medium, it brings across the followers. So we got like 60,000 followers on Medium very, very quickly, which is really cool. So uh, if anyone's got any JavaScript articles they want to put up on there, then just um, find DailyJS on Medium and just submit them across. Um, which actually, it just reminded me of the one last thing I need to mention, which is our Twitter account, JavaScript Daily. We've got like, I think about 200, and, I don't know, 290,000 followers on there now. Oh, wow. Um, we've had a lot of luck with that. Like, so we just take stuff that goes in the newsletters and we cross post it essentially onto Twitter. So we've got this audience that just don't want to receive email. Like we talk to people all the time. They're like, Oh, I get too much spam and junk. Um, but they'll follow us on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. So it's really cool having that, um, these different accounts to promote stuff on and just have fun with. So yeah, I guess I've kind of just been collecting up publishing related things, um, in these different programming spaces. And, you know, while I do code quite a lot, um, I don't, you know, have any sort of very prolific open source projects um, that people will know or that I'm famous for. I just kind of build my own stuff and do it for me. Um, and if I have a moment of brilliance and I kind of, you know, pat myself on the back and get on with it, like I'm not uh, a superstar programmer by any means. But I know to have to do the publishing thing and, uh, you know, shine a light on other people's projects. And I, I really enjoy doing that. Awesome. Well, um, I need to start getting ready for Ruby Rogue. So I'm going to start a start to push us into the, the last couple of sections of the show. Um, what are you working on now? Is, is there anything that you're working on that, uh, that we haven't gone into with the things that you've done or the things that you have? Um, not a huge amount. I've actually been quite unwell for the last several months. So I've been running kind of keeping everything on autopilot as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hopefully I'm going to come out of that soon. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing I do want to do is I want to kind of move, a little bit towards being more of a, like I mentioned before, like an industry anal- uh, analyst, essentially, right. where I can look at the whole programming world and join more dots together. Because there seems to be a need for that kind of information. And while there are bloggers that you know frequently get posted on Hacker News and stuff, I don't see anyone that's really made it like their cause to like really focus and aim for that type of thing. So I've got ideas as to how I can you know, perhaps be like the Dan Gruber almost, I guess, of, <laughs> of programming. Like I'm thinking along those lines. Um, I must admit there's not a huge amount of money in that type of thing, but luckily I'm now in a position where I can sort of think about like what I want to do necessarily rather what I have to do all the time. Um, right. cause I've kind of got a foundation from everything else. So that's what I'm really thinking about. 
Um, but as I said, I've not spent a huge amount of time on that because I've just not been, you know, super, uh, super well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so the last thing that we do on this show is picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. And mm. you've been around for a while. You know what picks are. Uh, do you have some things you want to shout out about? Yeah, I, I love the picks. It's one of my favorite parts of your shows. Um, so yeah, just a few random things, really. Um, if anyone does get into building their own email uh, lists and stuff like that, uh, an app that is really useful to to play with to get a feel for you know how your design's coming together and stuff like that. And I think the design is something you need to think about. Like you just don't just use a template. Like it's just going to look the same as everyone else's. Um, but anyway, it's Litmus. So L-I-T-M-U-S. Um, I think they're at litmusapp.com. Actually, no, they're litmus.com now. They bought the domain. Um, it's a site where you can code your HTML email and it will show you what it looks like in like about 50 different uh, email clients, mobile clients. I think oh, all nice. in one go. does cost money, um, but it's so neat. Like you can literally change a few keystrokes and like save and bam, you'll see what it looks like on Outlook or what it looks like on an iPhone. Like that is very, very valuable. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two would be uh, cheap games consoles on eBay. Like, I've been getting all these weird um, adverts on Facebook for these kind of weird Chinese clones of, like, Nintendo classics and these weird PSP-looking devices that have, like, you know, hundreds of ROMs on. Now, I think, you know, this is all a little bit shady and borderline legal, I think. Uh, but everyone's selling these on eBay. So you can pick up like these small devices that are literally like for me, it's like 20 pounds or like $30 or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and you can get a lot of playtime out of them. It's got the old Mario games on and stuff. So yeah, if you want to break the law and buy stuff of eBay, then I found those quite entertaining. Uh, could be good for the kids, possibly if uh, you have no morals. Um, <laughs> <I guess. laughs> my wife got me one of those for my birthday. Well, well, okay, the, the reason I think I can get away with saying all of this is because I really wanted a Nintendo Classic, and I kind of went to like some ends to try and get one, and they ran out, and they didn't release them here, and all this type of stuff. And it's like, look, Nintendo, if you don't want my money, I will just go and buy a cheap knockoff on, on eBay. Like, mm -hmm. I'm cool with that. I will give you money if you take the money. If you don't, no problem. So, uh, yeah, so number three um, is a person, actually, um, and it's Jason Scott. He is... Uh, he works at archive.org um, or the kind of the Wayback Machine um, online, which kind of shows you old web pages from the past and stuff. But archive.org also archives just like terabytes, possibly even petabytes by now of just old stuff. Like people just send him old discs from the 80s and magazines and books and stuff. And he's devoted his life to this. Like he will just take old computer stuff from, you know, like when we were younger, like these basic books that we were coding from and stuff. And he will scan them in and put them online and stuff. And he is just an absolute, I don't know, he's crazy, but like in a good way. Like I love people like that. He's really trying to preserve some of our digital heritage. So uh, if you want to head over to archive.org, you can find some amazing stuff in there. Um, and a lot of the old discs that he scanned from the 80s, like that have got old games on and stuff, he's hooked them up with DOSBox so that you can go to archive.org, find an old game from the 80s and literally click play on the page and it will use JavaScript and run DOSBox in an emulator on your web on the web. Oh, page. wow. And you can play the old games that you used to play um, on, you know, let's say if you were into PC at least, um, the old games from the 80s and stuff. Like, it's absolutely amazing. Um, like the old Sierra games and stuff. You know, he's put them all up there. It's great. So um, check that out, uh, archive.org and Jason Scott. I think his Twitter handle is Text Files, I believe, on Twitter. But he's a massive inspiration. He has a great podcast as well where he 
literally talks for half an hour a week about the stuff that he's archived or the experiences he's had with like retro computers and archiving and his life and stuff. Very inspirational guy. Um, yeah, I just recommend him very strongly. Just go and see what he does. He's a cool guy. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks as well. For those of you who who probably know, I, I it's funny. I talk to a lot of podcasters and they usually fall into two camps. They're either podcasting for a reason, you know, business or, or passionate about a topic, or they they podcast because they're passionate about a topic and they love podcasts. And that's more my speed. I, I subscribe to a ton of podcasts. I listen to all kinds of people about all kinds of stuff. And um, anyway, I've been really eyeing the Apple earpods, but I just haven't been able to justify the cost at this point. Um, especially since the, the wired, um, ear pods, uh, seem to work just fine, you know? Mm. So, um, anyway, there was a company out there that is putting together some Bluetooth, uh, uh, headphones, uh, earbuds. And so they sent me a review copy. It's one of the perks of being quote unquote press, uh, for CES. <laughs> Um, and since we have a large enough audience at devchat.tv, uh, I can apply for a press pass and they'll send me one. So I'm going to CES. I have to pay my way down there, but I get into the show for free. Nice. Um, anyway, so they, they sent me these, uh, ear pods or sorry, these, uh, headphones. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of in-ear earbuds. I haven't actually opened them yet. I probably, uh do that here pretty soon, but it's called the dash pro. Um, and yeah, they're Bluetooth. They connect to your phone and then you just pop them in your ears. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see how they go. I will probably wind up with a pair of AirPods eventually, I think, but I guess they'll work on Android though as well. I guess yes. if they're generic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So anyway, I'm pretty excited to try them out and I've been pretty happy with them. Um, one other thing that I'm going to pick is, uh, so I wound up having to get a new laptop because my MacBook Pro died. Uh, I had the 2013 model. Now I have the 2017 or whatever the latest model is. Um, and it's the one with, of course, the stupid USB-C jacks on it, right? It doesn't have anything else on it, right? And, I, could, I could argue with this all day. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm trying to plug my crap into it. And of course, I have to get 10 million dongles and people got all ticked off about it. Anyway, there are a couple of companies out there that have made um, docks essentially for them. So they're just little, um, they're, they're about the size of a pack of gum. Uh, well, a little bigger than that. But uh, they just plug into those two ports on the side of your computer and then you can plug your other stuff into it. So the one that I got has an HDMI plug on it. It still has two USB-Cs on it, uh, two USBs and an SD card reader. And so I have most of what I miss from my old MacBook Pro. And it was about $100. I've been pretty happy with it. Um, I wound up getting two of them. One of them is a J5 is the brand. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, the other one is, what is this? It's a Hyperdrive brand, Hyperdrive uh, hub for USB-C MacBook Pro. Anyway, they're both pretty nice. And I've been pretty happy with the results from those. So um, you just plug them in and then you can just do whatever you want. Uh, Thunderbolt 3 USB-C is supposed to be chainable. And so, you know, I've been able to hook all kinds of stuff up to it and it's been kind of nice. The other thing is, is that, um, and the reason that I have two is when I come home, I plug my MacBook Pro into my monitors because I have three monitors on my desk. And uh, anyway, so then it just hooks everything up. And then I can just yank that dock out when I, when I go to the um, coffee shop or whatever to work. Uh, usually it's a Denny's restaurant, actually, that I've been going to lately. Um, then I can just use the one in my bag. And then I can hook my mouse up and, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, I've been pretty happy with that. USB-C is the best thing ever. I like USB-C. I just don't like that people don't sell stuff that plugs into USB-C. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I can get it on Amazon, but then I have to buy new, all that stuff. It's getting better. Yeah. I think eventually things will go that way and that, you know, I think more and more stuff will come out that will work on USB-C and eventually it won't be as big a deal. But the fact that when I bought my laptop, I had to buy dongles for everything, that, that just kind of annoyed me. 
I just love the fact that I can charge my phone and my laptop using exactly the same chargers. I have like about 10 USB-C chargers just in every place that I tend to sit. And I can just alternate between my phone and my computer and it just works. Mm-hmm. You know, I use battery packs. I can charge on the left of the machine, the right of the machine. Like, I don't know. I just love it. Like, I'm the one person that actually is like super hyped up and plus for the MacBook Pro 2017. Like, it's it's perfect for me. Yeah. I'm, I, I can definitely see where you're coming from with that. I just need to, yeah, I just need to get to the point where I'm there. The other thing is, is like even my iPhone is an iPhone 6 Plus. So it has the whole, the old lightning plug on it. It doesn't have USB-C. And, yeah, that's the weird thing, isn't it? And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got different plugs for everything. And this just added a new plug type to my life. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think eventually it'll be less of a deal because eventually we'll just get monitors that just plug into USB-C and it won't be a problem. So, And there we go. We've started up a new tech review show there. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. Thank you for coming, Peter. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If people want to sign up for the newsletters or see anything else that you're doing these days, where do they go? Uh, probably cooperpress.com or you can find me uh, twitter.com forward slash Peter C. So P-E-T-E-R-C. Or just, you know, my recommendation for anything like this is just take whatever language you're using, stick weekly on the end and just Google that. Like it's either going to be something I own or it's going to be something else that is, you know, probably almost as good because I, I know a lot of the people that do other weekly, yeah. like pythonweekly.com and stuff. So just do it. Just find it. Like doesn't matter if it's mine or not. Just sign up. You're going you're gonna to find some cool stuff and learn something. Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone, have a great day, and uh, we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.